If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In rising to power and holding on to it, the Tudors owed a great debt to another family, the Dudleys. The Dudleys helped the Tudor dynasty soar to greatness and sometimes its members paid the ultimate price. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Dr Joanne Paul, the author of The House of Dudley, about the family's dizzying rise and deadly fall. So to start us off then, can you briefly introduce us to the key players in the Dudley family during the Tudor dynasty? Yeah, my book really looks at three, sort of three and a half generations of the Dudley family, And I suppose there is uh, a key figure, as you say, that we associate with each one of those generations. So I start with Edmund Dudley, who was a minister of Henry VII. His son was John Dudley, uh, often known as the Duke of Northumberland, who rises in the court of Henry VIII, becomes very important in the court of Edward VI. Um, And then, of course, his son, in turn, is Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, uh, the favourite of Elizabeth I. And he's the one, I think, that most people uh, who are familiar with this period may have encountered. He's he's often represented in film, for instance. So those are the people we often associate with the Dudley family. But what I really wanted to do was get a sense of the family, not as a series of individuals, um, but as as a family. And so I was really interested in some of those figures who might be considered to be somewhat peripheral, Um, especially, of course, the women in the family who are hugely important and we tend to know less about. And I'd definitely like to talk more about the women later. But before we come on to that, I wanted to ask more about this rise and fall of the Dudleys. What is it about them that made them so useful to the Tudors, but also so keen to usurp them in a way? That's really the question that prompted me to research the Dudleys in the first place. Uh, I encountered them while I was doing my doctoral research, I came across the pamphlet that starts my book called Leicester's Commonwealth, where they're presented as this tribe of traders who raise their children up to overthrow the Tudor dynasty. And of course, the, the reality is, is, is that each generation does rise very high and then fall very dramatically. And, and so the question really became as you say, why? I mean, what is going on with this family? And and I'm not sure that I came to a a, a single answer to that very big and complicated question. Um, Certainly they were ambitious. Um, I say at one point in the book that ambition is in the Dudley blood, and and I I don't think that that's wrong. Um, Few noble families during the Tudor period were not ambitious in, in some way. But where this ambition comes from, I think, is often presented as a sort of self-serving 
motive um, and and this desire to to attain the throne rather than serve the throne. And I'm not sure that's quite right. Um, I everything that I looked at, all the letters, all the documents, suggested a, a deep loyalty to the Tudors, even and perhaps especially in those moments where they seem to be trying to claim the crown for themselves. And also this sort of almost uh, defensive need to attain position, that, that somehow through that comes a sense of, of security, of, of triumphing over death, um, which of course seems a bit counterintuitive and maybe a bit ironic because it's that that leads to their downfall. But of course, we're still talking about them. So in, in some ways, they, they did triumph over death. Well, let's go back then to the start of the rise and think more about Edmund Dudley. What's his family background like before he comes to prominence under Henry VII? Edmund Dudley is often known as one of the new men of Henry VII, which means he comes from a relatively obscure background, um, though he's, he's in many ways a little bit more upper crust than I guess some of the other new men. He's the eldest son of a younger son of a baron, so has some connection to a noble house, uh, though through a lesser line of the family. He's a lawyer. Um, he has some standing in London. He has some standing in Sussex, which is where he's based before uh, he becomes uh, a minister of Henry VII. But we we definitely wouldn't have heard of him. <laughs> we wouldn't be studying him. We wouldn't be talking about him if it wasn't just a, a twist of fate, really, that meant that he had exactly the skills that Henry VII needed at exactly the moment that Henry VII needed them. So his, uh, I guess, niche academic subject was the king's prerogative. And uh, by 1504, Henry VII was very interested in shoring up money to preserve his dynasty. He had lost his eldest son. Everything was riding on the very small shoulders of his younger son, Prince Henry. And it seems that the best he could think to do to ensure that his son would inherit um, and would continue the dynasty was um, by making as much money for the crown as possible. Uh, and Edmund was was pivotal to that. And how do other courtiers feel about Edmund and his family after he becomes so adept at extracting coin from the people of England? Oh yeah, they hate him. <laughs> they hate him a lot. <laughs> um, they they are not fans of him. He's he's hated high and low. London hates him. The the London Chronicle, in particular, is is quite stark and and honest in its feelings about Edmund Dudley. And then we also know at at the very highest echelons of of the Tudor court, um, he had not made friends either. One of the things that I think is really Edmund's fatal flaw, I guess, if you want to think about it that way, is that he doesn't do the work to be popular. Um, because of course you can do horrible things <laughs> um, and still have people like you. We we know that in the Tudor period, but he he doesn't try to do that. All of his friends, when he first comes into the court, are really his father's friends. That's how he gets in there in the first place. And by the end of the reign of Henry the Seventh, they've all died. And of course, with Henry the Seventh dying as well, 
he's really left very vulnerable um, with no one to protect him. And so it, it is that unpopularity that leads to his downfall. Well, let's talk more about his downfall then. How exactly does he come to have his head on the executioner's block? So when Henry VII dies, um, there's this uh, meeting, I guess, of, of some of his leading and more directly connected courtiers. It's, it's a bit, if you've seen the film Death of Stalin, <laughs> it's a bit like Death of Stalin with everyone being pulled into the room around the corpse going, oh man, what do we do now? Um, and so they, they do this and they keep the, the king's death secret for a time while, while they figure out what they're going to do. Because the, the prince, Henry, about to be Henry VIII, is 17, almost 18. So he's, he's just about reached the age that he can rule for himself doesn't need a, a regent, a lord protector to rule for him. But things are very precarious. And it's worth remembering, of course, this is coming out of the Wars of the Roses. And so the sort of security that we might think about that comes with the Tudor period, that's all hindsight. Um, there's nothing sure at that point. Um, so they all meet and they're very interested in two things. One, securing the throne for Prince Henry, Henry VIII. And two, getting rid of the people they don't like. <laughs> and top of that list, of course, is Edmund Dudley. So as Henry VIII's reign is announced in London, they come for Edmund and uh, pop him in the tower. And he's in there for quite a long time. Um, he's charged with treason, with um, seeking to overthrow... Uh, Henry VII and um, to possibly capture or even kill Henry VIII. It, that's, it's completely made up. There is nothing true about those accusations. Um, and I'm not saying that as a great defender of Edmund. He's horrible in all sorts of ways, but he wasn't contemplating treason. He just wasn't. Um, they are just trying to get rid of him. The evidence they use is that he was stockpiling weapons. Um, that may have been the case, the inventory we have of his home. There were quite a few weapons there. But that's that's a that's sort of typical. Um, as you get wealth, one of the things that you buy is, is a lot of fancy weaponry. And and second, it, it may have been uh, a more defensive maneuver that a London mob, for instance, could come for him. Um, and he he would want to be able to defend his family. Uh, it certainly wasn't offensive in, in any way, but that's what they use against him. So he's imprisoned in the tower. He's, he's convicted of treason, imprisoned in the tower for quite a time. Uh, he does plan an escape, which I remember when I came across that source sort of did did a bit of a of a archival double take, I guess, going really. He did plan an escape from the tower. Um, it didn't it didn't go through. Essentially, everyone he'd planned it with um, at the last minute went, "No, <laughs> I'm not doing that." Um, and and so he he doesn't in the end attempt an escape. Um, he writes a book while he's in there called the Tree of uh, the Tree of Commonwealth, and eventually, after more than a year in the tower, um, he is he is executed because uh, Henry VIII goes on progress um, and essentially hears all the complaints from his people about Dudley and so sends back word to have him executed. So, you know, we think about Henry VIII and we often think about many, many executions and, and beheadings and, and Edmund is, is one of the first. And how did that decision to execute him really set the tone for the relationship between the two families? We we do get that sense that from that moment onward, there is this 
this relationship of of both support and suspicion, I suppose. Certainly, Edmund was incredibly useful to Henry VII, and Henry VIII would have appreciated that, would have understood that. He burns through most of the money in a couple of years, in in classic Henry VIII style, um, but he would have known how that money got there and, and would have understood how people like Edmund could be used. And Henry VIII is equally as famous for his new men, people like Thomas Cromwell, of course, Thomas Wolsey, who come from very low backgrounds and become incredibly useful to the Tudor crown. And of course, it it sets the tone going forward for the way in which the Tudor crown disposes with Dudleys. Um, I often talk about each Tudor monarch coming to the throne, building the reputation either on on the blood of a Dudley um, or on their sweat, on their work, right? Um, and, And we see that repeated throughout the 16th century. And so what happens to Edmund's family then after he's executed? How do they begin to climb the greasy pole again? That was one of the big questions for me after Edmund Dudley uh, is executed, is is what happens to his wife and children? He's got three children, all under the age of about six, um, and his wife, Elizabeth Gray, now Elizabeth Dudley, who has to look after them. I think she stays in London. Um, there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that she stays in London, but she doesn't stay at the house where they had lived because, of course, that's that's taken for the crown. And we have that inventory as they move through each of the rooms, packing up their belongings. She is really the key, though, to restoring the Dudley family. And and again, we'll, this is something we'll see repeated as well, that, that the women step in each time the men essentially mess it up. <laughs> women step in and restore the Dudley family. Uh, So she very quickly after marries the illegitimate uncle of Henry VIII. So he is a illegitimate son of Edward IV, Arthur Plantagenet, um, who is essentially a a friend figure to Henry VIII. He's one of the men um, that surrounds the young Henry VIII. And by marrying him, of course, uh, Elizabeth brings her family back into the, the courtly fold. And John, her eldest son, is placed into the household of the Guilfords, um, who have quite a position in the court as well. And as a ward, he is raised as, as one of their own children. And John marries Jane Guilford, doesn't he? Yeah, so he's he enters their household at the age of seven, eight years old, uh, and grows up with with Jane, uh, the daughter of the house, and they go on to marry when she's um, sixteen. He's he's about twenty one, I think, and and theirs is a really, I think, beautiful marriage, a beautiful partnership, really, in a lot of ways. They had some thirteen children, so I think they liked each other. <laughs> Um, if you don't, you kind of stop after about three or four. Um, and uh, she talks about him in letters, especially, I'm skipping ahead a bit here, but especially after he's arrested about him being um, the best husband a woman could ever want. So I think it's a very loving marriage and a very profitable partnership. I think they work together very, very well. So how do they work together then to improve their position in Henry VIII's court and also to curry favour with his wives? 
When I was researching the book, I thought, oh no, so, you know, I'm going to do Edmund Dudley, and that'll be fine. Lots of drama, lots of information, and then I'm going to sort of lose the Dudleys through most of the reign of, of Henry VIII. So, you know, surely they're not that important until you get to Edward VI. Nah, ha, ha. Um, they were, in fact, incredibly important. And it is really the pair of them that, that work to, to climb and to survive through this incredibly tumultuous period under Henry VIII. So um, it's really, the the start is with Anne Boleyn. The Dudleys very early on identify themselves as evangelicals, what we now call Protestants. And so uh, one of the tutors that they take on for their son is an evangelical who Anne Boleyn brings over from France. Um, so they're, they're very early on part of that circle. Under Jane Seymour, Jane Dudley, John's wife, formerly Jane Guilford, becomes one of her ladies, and we know that she's in the funeral procession uh, for Jane Seymour. They're both in the household of Anne of Cleves, so do well under Anne of Cleves as well. They don't do so well under Catherine Howard. The Howards hate the Dudleys, and that's one of the stories that, that really comes out in the book, especially if you look at this family intergenerationally, is, is this animosity between the Dudleys and the Howards. Howard's, of course, very conservative, this very ancient family, this very Catholic family, and, and resent up-and-comers, Protestant up-and-comers like the Dudleys. So they, they don't do very well under Catherine Howard. However, of course, she doesn't last very long. And John is the one who carries her interview with Thomas Cramner to Henry VIII. So he's pivotal in many ways in her downfall and does well out of it as well. Jane Dudley is very good friends with uh, Catherine Parr. Um, she's one of the few people who is at their very small private wedding um, between Henry VIII and Catherine Parr. So she does very well out of, out of that final marriage. And that's what really sets the Dudleys up to do so brilliantly under Edward VI. Well, let's come on to that next then. What do they do in Edward VI's reign? The Lord Protector for Edward VI is someone named Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset. He's a very old friend of the Dudley family, of John's in particular, though um, the, the wives were friendly as well. And so as he becomes the most powerful figure in the court of Edward VI, um, perhaps even more powerful than Edward VI himself, uh, John rises quite high as well. He takes the position of Lord Chamberlain, which is a very important position, and works very closely with the Lord Protector. That is until he turns against him. <laughs> um, and there's this wonderful, long story that sits behind what we tend to know about this period, which is, is that John participates in overthrowing Edward Seymour and um, takes essentially his position for himself. But they had been friends for decades. And when John participates in removing the Lord Protectorship from Seymour, uh, he immediately goes to defend Seymour against those who'd want to have him executed. And there's this scene that gets described in the council chamber where they're pushing to have Seymour executed. And uh, John puts his hand on the hilt of his sword and says, any who would have his blood would have mine also. 
um, and immediately ends any discussion about it. So he he wants to save his life. He he thinks that he's not a very good governor. <laughs> he's not a great politician, but doesn't think he should be killed and orchestrates the rehabilitation of Seymour and brings him back on the council. However, then uh, Seymour sort of takes that too far, even admits in his trial that he thought about having John Dudley killed. And so um, when he falls a second time, uh, John does have him executed. But you can see that this is not a very straightforward process. It's not the from point A to point B that I think we tend to think about in this period. But with um, Seymour or Somerset's fall, uh, John doesn't take the position of Lord Protector. No one does. He becomes the Lord President of the Council that rules uh, with Edward VI. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And they marry in secret and manage to keep it secret, at least from Elizabeth, uh, for quite some time, though it's probable that almost everyone else in the court knew, except for the Queen. thorny part of the story is Edward VI's succession. What role does John Dudley play in that? Oh, I wish I knew. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of the big questions and one of the big mysteries in dealing with the Dudley family. At the end of Edward VI's reign, as he is dying, he realizes that his successor, of course, would be his half-sister, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, Mary I, or at that point, Mary, Lady Mary, um, who does become Mary I. He doesn't want her to become Mary I, however, uh, for a couple of reasons. The most obvious is that Mary is Catholic. And we have the letters um, of of Edward trying to essentially chastise his his elder half-sister for not conforming to um, the Reformation and for holding on to her Catholic beliefs. So he knows that if Mary comes in, she's undoing everything that that he very passionately believes in. The other thing, though, that I think often gets overlooked is um, that Edward was clearly looking for a male successor. And we have his the manuscript of his device for the succession, you, you can find it digitized online. And it's actually fairly easy to read because he, he writes in a child's hand, which is, which is much like our own today. And you can see the stages that it goes through as he's editing it. And originally what it sets out is that the throne should go to Lady Jane Grey's heir's male. So he's clearly looking for male heirs, and he sets out the throne to go to the male heirs of his cousin, Lady Jane Grey. And then he crosses that out, and he says to Lady Jane Grey and her heirs male. And that addition of the and, of course, means that it first goes to Jane. Jane is third in line of succession after Edward's half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth. And Edward skips over Mary and Elizabeth, I think largely because they're unmarried. They're very, very unlikely to produce an heir male, whereas Jane is married, might even be pregnant, might even be pregnant with a prince, 
um, with a future king. The, the trick to all of this is that her husband is Guilford Dudley, <laughs> the son of John Dudley. And so people have always assumed that John played a very pivotal role in this, in, in ensuring that the crown went to his daughter-in-law and thus as consort, his son. We don't know. Certainly the device is in Edward's hand, whether the Lord President of his council, John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, was stood over him, directing him to write that, we don't know. What I would assert, though, is it's not out of Edward's own character to have written it. Um, so we don't need John Dudley to be standing over him demanding that he do that. Um, it, it would make sense that Edward would have done it anyway. So that's not quite an answer to the question, um, but it is it is a complex one, unfortunately. So I wanted to next go on to John's downfall because obviously Edward's succession wasn't what he had intended. There's a reason that Lady Jane Grey is known as the Nine Days Queen because Mary, of course, usurped her. What happens to John when Mary's on the throne? John defends the claim of his daughter-in-law, Lady Jane Grey, and actually rides off to fight for for her reign um, and and goes off to battle essentially against future Mary the first. Um, battle is never waged while he's away from London. The council turns on him and declares for Mary. Um, and so he he submits to arrest and is, is brought back to London in in deep disgrace. He's very quickly convicted of treason, unlike his father, for whom the the treason charges were entirely fabricated. Um, John did exactly <laughs> um, what they, they charge him with. The difficulty, of course, is, is that he was obeying his sovereign, first Edward VI and then Queen Jane, and he was doing it in line with the council as well, uh, many members of which stood as judges in his trial. So even though he did it, there, there is this sort of complex legal question about whether it still counts as treason. The, the Tudors kind of don't mind <laughs> whether it counts or not. Um, he is convicted of, of treason and set to be executed. And you mentioned earlier that women play a big part in this story. And this is where I wanted to go next, because John's wife, Jane, is instrumental in lifting her family out of this terrible situation, isn't she? Even before John is executed, his wife is working hard for him and for their children, all of whom might end up being executed for treason. Um, So she immediately, as soon as uh, she is able to leave the tower, sets off to meet with Mary I, um, sick with worry, and she describes how she can't sleep, um, and she's sick to her stomach, but wants to save her husband and children. Mary won't see her. She sends off desperate letters to many of the women of the court, and of course, with a queen, it means that women become even more important in in the court because they are the ones surrounding the monarch. None of this seems to do any good. And of course, John is executed, Um, but this doesn't stop her. She and her daughters and her daughters-in-law work very, very hard in the court, forming connections, powerful connections, especially once Philip II comes in as the husband of Mary I and brings a whole new Spanish court with him. They work hard to make connections with, with that new court as well. And she does it. She, 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 she manages to 
ingratiate herself essentially in this new court with this new reign uh, sufficiently to save her children. And so the pardon of her remaining sons is dated to the day of her death. So next I wanted to talk about Robert Dudley, who really stood on the shoulders of those who came before him. He's a close favourite of Elizabeth I, but how close, Joanne? Did they have an affair? Do we know? I have no idea. This is this is the did they do it or didn't they do it <laughs> question. Um, they were very close, um, certainly emotionally very close. Um, physically, he was in close proximity to the queen. Um, his position of master of the horse meant that he was always very close with her, which gave him not only um, access, but but privilege as well and, and power. Uh, they certainly seem to have courted in various ways. Uh, we have his account books and he's, he's paying for dinners in St. James Park and, and, and things like that, buying her gloves. And he also spent money on tipping her servants at various points, perhaps greasing wheels of access. It's, it's hard to be sure. It would have been difficult, to say the least, to have conducted an affair. That being said, uh, in the book, I look at one episode where one of her uh, women, her ladies, sneaks from her chamber into Robert's in the dead of night without anyone noticing. So I'm just saying <laughs> it was possible. Um, and their, their chambers were usually connected in some way. That's basically as much as we can say about it. But I think the thing to really focus on is how beautiful their relationship was, regardless of whether it was physically consummated or not. And did he ever think that they might be able to wed? It certainly appears that he was hopeful of that at various points. Uh, at the beginning of her reign, it would have been quite impossible because he was already married. <laughs> but his wife dies in mysterious circumstances in 1560, which in some ways frees him up to marry because he's now single. In other ways, it does not um, because there's rumours that he was the one who murdered his wife, which does not make him an excellent candidate for marrying the queen. Certainly many, many other people thought that they would marry. And ambassadors' reports are constantly either assuming that they will marry very imminently, uh, reporting that they have married secretly, that there are only such and such barriers to the marrying and then they're about to. So the entire court seems to have assumed at various points that that it was going to happen. Of course, we know that it never did. And how does he lose her favour? Well, he loses her favour a few times. <laughs> he's, he's in and out of... They have a very fraught, heated relationship. Um, and he's in and out of favour a few times. He's certainly not in her good books when uh, his, his wife dies in mysterious circumstances. There's a later episode in the Netherlands where he's particularly out of her favour, um, prompting his elder brother to say that he would be better in the farthest lands of Christendom than ever to come back to England. But I think perhaps the episode that people would know best is when he does secretly remarry. And he marries uh, Elizabeth's cousin, Latisse Knowles. 
for whom um, Nicola Tallis has written an excellent book called Elizabeth's Rival, if people want to read up on her. And they marry in secret and manage to keep it secret, at least from Elizabeth, uh, for quite some time, though it's probable that almost everyone else in the court knew, um, except for the Queen. Uh, And when she finds out, she goes into an absolute rage, exiles them both from the court. Uh, Robert, she eventually allows back in. Um, Latisse, she never does. What's the ultimate fate of the Dudleys? The Dudley line ends, really, at about the same time and for really the same reason as the House of Tudor, uh, which is that they don't manage to produce an heir. Uh, As I said, Jane and John have 13 children, but those children are not very successful in producing the next generation, um, particularly the the men. Um, So the surviving sons into the reign of Elizabeth, Ambrose and Robert, neither of them have surviving children. And so the House of Dudley um, essentially uh, dies off, although uh, it's, it's picked up in many ways by the House of Sydney, thanks to Mary Dudley, Sydney. And for my final question, do you think the Tudors would have been a successful dynasty without the Dudleys? Oh, what a fascinating question. I, I, I think that's wonderful. I think the Tudors owed a very great deal to the Dudleys. I don't think we would have the Tudors as we know them today, love or hate them, <laughs> if it weren't for the Dudley family. The work of Edmund at the beginning of the period to secure all of that wealth for Henry VII, but used by Henry VIII, that reputation that we have of Henry VIII, especially in the, the first years of his reign, as, as being magnificent, as being um, martial, as, as being uh, a patron of, of learning and the arts, he wouldn't be able to do that without the money that Edmund Dudley acquired for him. And then John had a pivotal role in developing the Tudor Navy as Lord Admiral, really revolutionizes the Navy uh, in ways that set the stage for the uh, Elizabethan Navy and then really the Navy of the British Empire. And Robert, as as a, a patron of the arts, as really the quintessential Elizabethan courtier, that sense of the Elizabethan period, everything we associate with it, the swirling rumor, the beauty, all of that is summed up very much in in Robert's own own life and character. So certainly the Tudors, as we know them, are dependent on the House of Dudley. That was Dr Joanne Paul, author of The House of Dudley, which is published by Penguin and on sale now. Joanne also wrote a feature on the Dudley family for the May issue of BBC History magazine which is on sale until the 11th of May. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Bateman.